Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new Exes for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. We have a number of amazing titles on this Modern Marvels Wednesday. We're going to kick things off with a combined look at X-Force 28 and Wolverine 21 before moving over to the excellent number three and finishing things out with the most recent issue of Marvel Voices, 2022's Identity Special. But let's get things started with that Ben Percy double coverage over over in X-Force and Wolverine. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So feel free to give us a subscribe over on Twitter at X is for podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X is for podcast. I'm TK and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNate X Gray X. Hey, guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drusifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Hi, guys. I'm Broadway. You can find me on Twitter at B-Way3-R-D, B-W-A-Y-3-R-D. It's also on the day of recording, Pansexual Visibility Day. Shout out to all my fellow Paninis. I love you guys. I think is a perfect day for us to be talking about a Wolverine double feature. X-Force number 28 written by Ben Percy with art by Robert Gill, colors by Guru EFX, VCs Joe Caramagna on letters, and Tom Muller with Jay Bowen on design. We're also talking about Wolverine 21, also written by Ben Percy, with art by Adam Kubert, colors by Frank Martin, VCs Corey Pettit on letters, and Tom Muller with Jay Bowen on design again. Wolverine sort of starting to come out of the woodwork as his own kind of pansexual icon in this era so what a good time to talk about his disturbing history of executing the state's worst laid plans but i think it's really funny that we're dealing with ben percy who very clearly loves wolverine two separate wolverine stories in which we are dealing with the krakoan relationship to other nations and how that is really intertwined with the huge mistakes they're making with technology So I guess my first question would be, how disturbing is it to see this weird squid-like Cerebro helmet roaming around the island? I mean, it's kind of not weird at all. You know, just another day in the life of the Krakoans and kind of like Quentin Quire says in this issue, you know, Krakow is supposed to be a safe haven for mutants, but since the beginning, when has it been a safe haven for mutants? Like, shit just keeps happening there, so. (laughs) It's very spooky, but it's also deeply characteristic of Krakoa. I can't help but notice the similarities between Zerebrak and Omega Red, and I would imagine that that's intentional, but the tentacles, it's not for me. It's just unfortunately such a regular day on Krakoa. I do really appreciate Percy's willingness to create plot points that he then forces 
forces himself to have to deal with later. The idea that what happened in the pages of X Lives and X Deaths could go forward as simply as it did and just tie up with a neat resolution didn't really sit right with me, but I didn't have any problem with it at the end of that story because it had really just ended. And I love that he immediately picked up his X-Force run again by showing us that the consequences of using Cerebro in the way that Gene and Charles did is that it has gained sentience and is now eating people. I appreciate that sort of self-accountability from an author. The machine question is going to come to the forefront, and I think we're obviously seeing that with X-Force and Wolverine between Cerebrax and Danger, but it's not just those. You know, you've got the Furies going full Sentinel in Knights of X, Nimrod and Omega Sentinel in X-Men. You've got the techno-organic virus in Sword going into X-Men Red. So there's some interesting things brewing, and I appreciate that Percy is kind of leading the charge on that out of X-Lives and X-Deaths and directly into X-Force and Wolverine. I like the continuity, and I like that it seems that everyone else is engaging in the same space. Yeah, and they kind of did that too with Reign of X. In Reign of X, it was here, it, they were doing a lot with the plants, like the Peacock Man and all that with X-Force, and then Horticulture in X-Men, and it just kind of like spread around in there too. When we started with House of X and Powers of Ten, we were given this very clear cue that machine intelligence, as we have seen it before presented in the X-Men, presents a real challenge to the mutant's future, and it's something that we have to be thinking about how humans might use it against them. But in the years since, the Krakoans have kind of, through their engagement of dealing with this problem that they believe is coming, have created so many additional machine intelligence threats for themselves. And it does kind of all go back to Quentin Quire's point about, like, they created this place to be a safe haven for them, but it's not really feeling that way. And there's definitely a certain degree to which that is their own fault. I mean, Moira is like the textbook example, just like robot Moira coming into existence, but also the the sort of Nimrod of it all. They tried to mitigate Nimrod and in the process created him. And also by turning Moira human, they created in the same process another robot enemy. Yeah, it's like not really working out for them. I'm also in the galaxy brain camp that thinks that the Eternals are functionally machines. That's obviously looming with Judgment Day. Like there's just a lot of machinery happening. But with Cerebrax, it's, it's becoming sentient. It's like developing an identity. It's asserting itself in the world. One of the questions like, well, when does the kill no man thing apply to machine? Um, and would we really like have that law to protect, you know, Fei Long or like insert other like human supremacists, but not this like toddler machine that like is killing people. Don't get me wrong. But like is also like newly sentient. I don't know. It's like a weird question. I can't imagine X-Force is going to make the right choice. But I think that's one of the really interesting things is the idea of somebody like Beast at the helm when something like this comes up. We've really taken things as far as they can go and we basically need to have a reckoning when it comes to Beast as the Henry Kissinger of Krakoa and his, you know, policy in dealing with other nations. 
having gone so far off of anything that is acceptable. I mean, it's kind of the the left hand to the right hand of the incarceration problem on Krakoa. Like, these are really the two enormous sins of this nation that in a lot of ways we want to be better, but we can see the ways in which it's not. When we're looking at the interactions with, like, Terra Verde, that's already bad enough. But to then move into how this group is going to deal with the creation of a brand new life form. I love that we're, we have Beast as this like really big looming problem and wanting to believe that they could all do better. But I love that we're seeing personalities like Sages assert a will to actually do the better that I think this team could do. While not abandoning the mission, which is something I appreciate. Yeah. And her foresight and insight seems to be paying off more. The tapping of Omega Red is important not just for the spirit of Krakoa, but also he's useful. He's like a really good killer and he's smart. He's fit for X-Force in a lot of ways, but also it's like it mirrors the mission of Krakoa and it is an interesting parallel with Zerebrak. They're both sort of killing machines. One is literally a killing machine and the other has been like turned into one. Um, And I wonder if they'll be able to see that for Zerebrak and come up with a better solution yeah the one thing we're seeing with sage is that she actually realizes her problems she wants to do good even though she has like you know she's an alcoholic like she needs to finally come to that realization and and, and either like fix her problems or like have something happen so that you know that comes to a full like conclusion and i think there's no way that that story gets developed without a real reckoning between her and beast probably one in which she has to make a decision for the greater good and i again what i love about x-force is that you know x-force has existed for a while and x-force is always that team that does what has to be done to keep mutant kind safe and i feel like you know during the utopia era the idea that wolverine would take his clone daughter and go murder any threat that was beseeching this tiny little island where they were just trying to survive we all kind of rooted for them because all of the threats were just like why are you picking on these 200 people that are probably going to go extinct and are just trying to live out their lives and when krakoa started I think we all were sort of imagining that X-Force would be like the, yeah, they do the hard things and they might kill the guy, but this is a minority nation trying to thrive in the face of incredible odds against them and incredible hate. So if they have to do something horrible in order to take care of their people, sure, I'm actually totally fine with it. But it really devolved under Beast's hand into whatever we have to do is fine because this will be for the betterment of our nation regardless of how terrible a thing it is. And Sage as the counterbalance to that might have to do one final original sin in order to balance the scales. Yeah, it's kind of them moving from a reactive space where, you know, their origins are the assassination of Xavier, it's in response to that, it's in reaction to that, to then moving into an active space and being the assertive force. The problem is that, at least in Beast's mind, he hasn't gotten out of the, the kind of mindset of the reactive space, which is like, fix things, solve the problem, protect the nation, whatever, whatever. The nation is the highest maximum. Sage is looking at the broader picture, right? If they're going to act, if they're going to be a force in the world, if they're going to assert themselves, then they have to think a little more intentionally and they have to try to have some sort of moral compass because otherwise they end up reacting to mess that they've created over and over again. It's especially funny because Beast is not typically the 
traumatized mutant that laments for his kind and really wants to do better by them. He's often the guy that kind of sides with the Avengers and wants to science the problem, but isn't really deeply ingrained in the emotional level of whatever is beseeching mutant kind the way that a lot of his peers and the people that he grew up with are. So the fact that he gets onto this island and is like, no, I will do the most horrible thing I can think of just to prevent the possibility that one day somebody else will show up and present a problem to, you know, he was always the the fun, bubbly beast. And I think uh, we know that partially this is lying under the surface from Dark Beast, but I think that the total lack of justification for how severe he's gotten actually works for me as a really humanizing moment for this character. Yeah, I agree. There's the old quote that's like, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But somebody else revised that quote and said, it's not that power corrupts, it's that power reveals. And so if you have that kind of narcissism under the surface, having the authority to be the only people on the island who don't really have to answer to the council, you can't get thrown in the pit for killing people, you got to do whatever you want, like reveals all of that narcissism. Yeah, I agree. It's this long build up too. like Percy could have just done like a couple of things and had this done in two arcs, um, like the trial of beast or whatever. But no, that's been going on since the beginning of like of this this run and it's still going on and we haven't had like a, a resolvement of it. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, and I don't think we're anywhere near the trial because I think, you know, if Sage pulled him into in front of the council tomorrow and was like, this guy's totally fucked up. The council knows everything that's going on. He still has like one more thing he has to do that can plausibly make it so that somebody else can say, we now have to analyze Beast's position and knock him down. And that's like the most tame way. I mean, it really might be something a lot more violent than that. Or at a minimum, Sage has to probably prove herself as a more effective counterpart. Right like the better alternative as somebody who you know, studied international studies in college and kind of national security stuffs it is funny that beast part of the way he stays in his position is the constant shit that is always happening like cerebrax means that x-force has to deal with that the mercs means that they have to deal with that uh, mikhail means they have to deal with that and so there's never an internal evaluation of like wait a minute you're the problem often for people in the security sector or like autocrats in general and it's like you can never have time to like evaluate how they're the problem because you're out putting out the fires that you don't even realize they're really causing i love that i think that's a perfect description of what is going on here so we've talked a lot about machine technology and how that is really coming up for mutant kind right now and coming against them but we see a another form of technology a mutant technology in this issue that i loved and was really fascinated with and really appreciated as a sort of supposition of what can be done with the resurrection process. And that is, of course, Quentin Quire creating husks based on other X-Men that he can pilot remotely and use to fight for him. A really brilliant and disturbing idea that I feel like has been lingering in the back of my head ever since the resurrection process was described, but I never thought we would see on panel as 
blatantly as we're seeing it here and i loved it this is almost like light level chimeras that they're doing here Mm -hmm. in a way and that that is kind of like how the machinery thing it is another underlying uh kind of current going on in this era and i feel like between hellions the way in which sinister just like dissolved gray crow or like the way in which you know the other marauders are just sort of like ready to be like turned like activated and and unleashed it is funny that you know way of x so deeply deals with questions of like resurrection and and treating your body with dignity and like treating life as precious and then again x-force being the dark mirror of it all shows you well what happens if we focus on the militaristic aspects much like as you said drew like the chimeras i think it's really fascinating i think it poses like a really complicated question because if these are useful and are getting the job done then is it like does that justify the twisted kind of i don't even know it's not exactly clones but it's like in a weird kind of mr sinistery space and the one that really got me was emma because ostensibly she could do that too like she could have a husk built Mm -hmm. of herself or anybody else and control it and for somebody who because of now her position on the quiet council is probably quite risk averse but also likes to have her fingers in a lot of different pots i would think that this would be a technology that she would be really interested in for herself the potential for scaling it up like i think about was it life nine where moira partners with apocalypse it really is like a a mutant machine man war they were popping out these husks you put like quentin gene and emma together and they could pilot multitudes of them like you could really like throw those at your enemies like very like naruto multi-shadow clone jutsu like it's actually kind of terrifying the military potential of that when you couple them with like gates and things like that like you really do you really could just produce a giant disposable army in mass that was always kind of my grand idea of how this was all gonna end was like having those chimera be that kind of clone army because again another underlying theme is like especially at the very very beginning dawn of x was this concept of hive minds and you know that idea of you know a collective and they kind of did what i was thinking in x of swords like both very fascinating and also terrifying and obviously we don't get to see the collapse of like the mars breeding pit in life nine but that's like in the back of my mind is that sort of gale of conflict and that gale of Mm -hmm. kind of inhumane yeah like i'm like i'm talking like lord of the rings level like yeah yeah (laughs) i appreciate that we're sort of sitting with questions about where does krakoa nationalism and quote-unquote security take us well and i also love that we're getting to these points where these questions are raised in unrecognizable ways apocalypse is completely off the board right now it's not sinister that is making these particular husks it's quentin choir who seems to be just like going to his friends and being like hey do me a solid make me a juggernaut which is so much funnier and stupider than sinister having this massive clone breeding farm which is still like a looming threat and a thing he's definitely doing off-site somewhere and will come to fruition in probably immortal x-men or another story but the idea that the really penetrating frightening immediate use of this technology that we have to deal with right now in this issue is quentin choir being too lazy to pilot his own body through stuff is really funny to me right like he's so averse to dying that he's like well let's just make make me a colossus and it's and it parallels the way that beast tells x-force you like you guys 
are the cooks now cook and it's like that's exactly what he's he's like bake me a you know colossus strawberry shortcake and i think that's like it's very funny but it's also horrifying it is horrifying and it's just like the idea that this is the group domino quentin sage beast and wolverine all sitting around a table just being like i don't i guess we're the law and it's like wolverine is kind of the most balanced of all of them the whole thing is just hilarious to me it's completely ill-advised it's so wrong and yet it's also in some ways like really funny and i think it's the right way to approach dealing with these questions because we know how much more severe and serious and like on the ground horrifying they can be so to have this moment where wolverine just walks in and is like what the fuck are you doing idiot child again and it's just a like a pile of husk bodies that is a good place to start the conversation so that everything doesn't have to be just staggeringly horrible all the time especially considering it's quentin who has you know gone full kind of scary incel before and it seems like he's not in the best of places between losing that little kid and getting dumped because like if he snaps like we do have a problem i'm of the mind that he's working through all of that and that like the growth the emotional growth we've seen will like help prevent him from doing something scary but it's like you know giving it teenager maybe he's early 20s at best like giving him carte blanche to cook up massive amounts of bodies with their mutations just doesn't that he can like pilot remotely just doesn't seem like super responsible and i think there's an interesting contrast point between the way logan deals with quentin in x-force throughout the run and how we are starting to see the relationship that is forming between wolverine and deadpool in this most recent arc of wolverine it's this like frustratedly paternalistic logan that is saddled with the responsibility of monitoring this person that is both an obvious asset and an obvious liability at the same time and because x-force is really skirting a lot of lines and doing it really well and at times being funny and like knowing not to go too all in all at once it's interesting that wolverine at this time is the book that's actually even funnier and even sillier and even stupider while dealing with a lot of the same themes and issues and questions i think that's definitely a credit to percy's writing and i know that some people have had kind of issues with his writing i think i've come to understand his approach which is a bit different it's a bit more novelistic and a bit more cyclical and i think that this moment especially with deadpool kind of disrupting the general energy of wolverine i mean he reminds me a bit of like solemn and that it's like just an agent of chaos but yeah it is funny both in like a uh, kind of meta sense and in a literal sense that the books that are most about kind of black ops and buy games and you know maverick scamming his own people it's like those are the funny ones and they're handling some very intense stuff with like the cia and a sentient cerebro biting people's heads off like they're handling all of that with a level of intention but also humor um and the humor does not distract from like the seriousness of it well it's also that we 
were just off of like uh, 10 issues of Wolverine exclusively for three months and that was like you know what I mean adding Deadpool to the Wolverine book was like that kind of gave it a little bit of a break from Wolverine and it does feel like a new book even though it's the same with the same numbering and it kind of goes along with all of the new books in this era so a perfect time for that too it's a good pivot and change in flow and tempo while still dealing with the same stuff yeah i appreciate the demonstration of the idea that in this era that's divided up into like you know dawn of x reign of x destiny of x that if your book is ongoing you can choose to kind of tweak it and restart it unofficially within a new era and give it just a kind of different tonal shift pick up all the same plots but just write the book a little bit differently i agree that now looking back on everything i feel like i appreciate and understand percy's broader process a lot better i was really having trouble after x lives and 10 deaths of wolverine i it was just to me very serious it was a lot of stuff it was very logan heavy anyway and logan's not always my favorite like go-to front and center character but it was just like very dark and gritty and like not really always that funny and i kind of thought to myself like i'm i'm reading everything that comes out no matter what but like in my mind i'll kind of prioritize x-force and wolverine a little bit less and like focus on stuff like immortal x-men and x-men red that are seem like they can have a little bit more sense of ensemble cast and drama and adventure and of course as soon as i do that percy totally flips the script and gets really silly and funny about all this stuff while never letting go of any of the plot threads that he's pulled together it's really tough work to do and i very much appreciate it um especially for the wolverine book which was one of my lower tier ones just because wolverine as a character isn't always my favorite person but what a perfect time to introduce wade who is somebody who will never let even a tendency for a writer to idealize wolverine that with deadpool as a supporting character that can never go too far because he's always going to just suck up eyes and page space and do jokes that are going to ruin wolverine's sense of seriousness and something i appreciate kind of to what you were saying is that like even the presence of deadpool and this is part of the process and i've listened to interviews with percy and it's, he talked about like sort of bringing things back and there's like a cyclical element to it because it's an ongoing story and even you know like wade shows up in the hellfire gala from last year right and so there is this like cyclical element where it's like he was seated early like back then i was like i don't understand why like deadpool is in x-force but now it's like ah i see like uh, same thing with the robot hand you know that was from when we got introduced to maverick again and it's like i, I appreciate the the use of repetition and subtle changes each time we interact with these characters their role is different their relationships have changed maverick i thought was gonna like join and be you know like hang out and be boyfriends with wolverine and it's like no they're like beefing right now i was never paying attention or keeping track before but now i just implicitly trust that the really important plot threads that percy has pulled and strung together and woven together even if i can't see one he definitely knows where it is and it's coming in a way that i'm probably not predicting not because it's not being sort of foreshadowed but because he knows when to change things up with the book and when to sort of let certain points recede to the background because you can't just hammer away at things the whole time and i think that requires a level of trust in the author and for a while i could speak for myself i didn't 
didn't have it and yeah, now i do like i've always enjoyed x-force and wolverine since they've begun but again they also haven't really been at the top of my list i like him as a writer i just some of the things he does kind of a weird weird thing to say but you're not doing what i want you to do so that's kind of like my issues with him is that it's kind of yeah no and i think that a lot i've thought that exact thing about ben percy a lot just like Agreed. this isn't the stuff that i want like i come to these books and especially like early on with hawks pox it was like i show up to these books and i get everything i want every issue so later on when more writers came on and people started putting their own ideas out there i was like these people are all amazing right i'm not going to say any one of these people is doing anything like that i could ever do but they're also not doing the stuff that i want like why is nobody writing the scott gene logan thruple anymore like that's all i care about why is no one doing that so percy was a tough one because he was oftentimes just not doing the stuff that i wanted i was still really impressed with the writing it just wasn't what i wanted to happen and this even is not the stuff that i would have asked for but now that i'm sitting here reading it on the page and just having a lot of fun with it he has proven to me that sometimes i don't even know what i want it's kind of like pizza even when it's not that great it's still pretty good (laughs) (laughs) yeah i agree i there were a lot of moments and i was like well why aren't you doing this or why aren't you doing that or why aren't you leaning into this element of the stories or of you know the hot pot lore but he's doing something different and i i have grown to appreciate that and to take what the author is presenting me and not always sort of imposing my personal subjective fairly arbitrary desires upon the book and instead like receiving what it's giving to me and and it has given us a lot of cool stuff i mean like the the journey that omega red is on especially for a character who does not have a robust like bibliography it's pretty impressive and same thing with maverick and to throw deadpool in the mix and to really lean into the kind of um weapon x team x uh part of the marvel universe is good because it's it, i feel like it's refreshing those characters and making them like more relevant and present and giving them again like a deeper bibliography so then you can say like oh like i can cite this book for omega red stories or whatever in a way that you haven't really been able to for a long time omega red i think is the textbook example of something that even through x lives next deaths of wolverine i would say i just did not want that why why are we dealing with omega red this much why are we talking about omega red i why is he the main villain of this i don't want it i don't care but after that issue where sage goes and like gets him resurrected and they all agree that they have to do better at the end of the day it now justifies everything that came before and i kind of it turns out did want it and it makes me think really differently about the character it made me think differently about x-force about sage about how the quiet council is dealing with x-force it really was a huge reset and i don't mind now that there was so much story that i didn't particularly want because again it wasn't bad writing now i can go back and really enjoy it because i see what the whole thing was there exactly and i think that what he's doing i think it's really powerful and it has been a lesson at least for me in in trusting the writer and and rereading i've been doing a lot of these like very intent like reread and then when you zoom out it's like oh wait i see what's going on here like omega red is interesting maverick is interesting 
interesting, but they have to be put into interesting circumstances. And somebody still needs to explain the Maverick nose mask situation. That's the biggest issue that's still remaining for me. Just that he like wears that weird mask. Like, does thing. he crush his nose? What's going on? I need to know. Somebody needs yeah, to know. Yeah, I'm now looking at Wolverine number eight, and it's like, where is his nose? It is a Voldemort situation. I need to know Whoa. everything. I would like a full data page on this. He really doesn't have a nose. But he, he does. Like, we know he does. We've seen it without the mask sometimes. He definitely has one. Yeah. I need to know what happens to it. Is it retractable? He's super no, hot. No, Maverick's so fucking hot. It's actually, like, really gross the way I feel about him. <laughs> and the mask is part of it. You yeah, know, no, I dig it, the mask. it works. I just and the hair. How the hair works. is really sexy. It's the hair. The hair is me. great. It's I hair. do feel like he gets really cheap, shitty bleach jobs, which that also does stuff for me. But Yeah, listen, I like a cheap man. I like yeah. a... I like a scumbag he is definitely a scumbag i think it's really amazing that we have talked about this wolverine issue for like 20 minutes and we haven't really talked about anything that happens in this wolverine issue because at the end of the day not really a lot does no but in yeah the possible way and what even like i get the ending but i don't get the ending like the final page reveal kind of like it's danger but is it like cerebro danger like i'm so curious to know i mean that and that is what i was driving towards was that you know this is really all just a lot of of funny Wade wordplay and just like silly Wade Logan interaction with a little bit of danger sprinkled in and some Maverick and Weasel just to kind of set up who everybody is to give us this comedy of errors and to bring us to this moment where we see this briefcase that has been mentioned for two issues that contains a seemingly mashup version of danger and a Cerebro cradle helmet that in light of what we're seeing in X-Force with Cerebrax is maybe even more frightening now you can't just jump from a to z you hack we need a midpoint complication and that's definitely what this is and i do appreciate the kind of meta humor there definitely one where i could understand where if you were expecting more clarity on things you haven't gotten it and that might annoy people but i also know that like you know dangers on danger and maverick are on the covers of future wolverine books so i feel like it will come together in the next like two issues but i also agree that like we didn't really get a whole lot of, of like forward movement necessarily but i think that's okay because wolverine yeah th- this is a change wolverine has been moving forward the whole thing like it's been like a kind of constant and again coming off of x lives ss i'll say it again it's just like there was always too much stuff like so much action and so to take a breather where there's actually still a ton of action it's just that it doesn't move anything forward it's just dumb especially with this as the final reveal for me i love this as a final reveal because of course i I now I there's so much more I want to know and it creeps me out and I'm just really curious. I'm okay if it's going to be like two to five more issues of dealing with what this is and what it means. I've been liking this series since it started, so I'm really excited to see where it's going to go. Same. And I I also recognize that in this issue, even the I mean a lot of it as you said TK was like a lot of action, but also some of it is flashback action. Like some of it is just like Wade recounting how he got here and all of that. So it's like it's a setup issue which isn't inherently bad if you can like recognize that that's what it's doing because also you know maverick and them thought they were getting shiard logic diamonds and didn't and so now the question is like well what is this and so you know like i imagine that the next issue is going to open with somebody answering what is in this briefcase and then we're going to get a sense of like oh like that's what danger is up to that's why this happening etc etc
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, chronoskimming, classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snicked in around the time stream over at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. Hi, everyone. I'm Jake. You can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And if you want to follow me refusing to teleport anywhere, you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience just like Vivisector did, even though he kind of already is dead and we're going to talk about him like he's a ghost, but he's still there with us in spirit and physically. I'm, you know, such a big Ecstatics fan. I have so many like special memories with this book and it's many continued iterations. Dupe is like my soulmate. And I have repeatedly said that Dead Girl is probably the most powerful mutant in all of existence. And I really enjoy this book, but I am three issues in more than ever really worried that this book is not for anyone but me. Like (laughs) I, I guess it's four issues in because there is the incredible giant size issue as well but this book seems to be really about ironically enough a poisonous view of a zeitgeist and I'm finding myself interested by the number of things we're going back to we essentially have a you go girl we essentially have an anarchist you know we have a bunch of the same characters here we are fighting Doctor Strange or fighting with Doctor Strange or Doctor Strange is somehow appearing in the book in a way that doesn't really match the solicit half the time <laughs> I'm just curious on the experience everyone else is having because as happy as it's making me I'm really concerned that it's not echoing with fandom I really thought that this issue more than any other so far gave me plot points that I could really dig into a little bit more especially with Mirror Girl because you know she's really you're really getting a little bit more of her backstory you're getting more of the conflict that she has with the group you know she's got this whole arc where she wants to leave and she's trying to build the resolve but she's also like got terrible self-esteem and that's reinforced by zeitgeist being incredibly emotionally abusive towards her um i i I, this gave me a little bit more to hang on to story-wise but i still am really digging the like the constant theme running through of social media and like deep deep personality toxicity i'm still absolutely loving it but i do increasingly feel like it doesn't feel sustainable for a larger audience audience and maybe that's okay maybe this is just a boutique mini that we're all going to enjoy maybe a maxi but it's interesting the way that for the first couple issues including the giant size I think we were all kind of like so is this going to do for the current Krakoan era what Ecstatics was doing for X-Men at that time is yes this its own continuity like what's exactly here I think the message is it's just kind of its own thing at this point and from a perspective of like who is this for. My only concern about that is that people like that interconnectivity and might warm up to this a little bit more if it were a little bit more directly commenting on and satirizing the events that we're seeing on Krakoa right now. It's not that I think that it needs to. It's not that I have any problem with it the way that it is. I love it. If it wants to just do its own thing and not reference stuff, that's fine. But my only concern is just in terms of sales and how popular this thing is and how many eyeballs get on it. I that seems like probably not the most guaranteed way to get readers, but maybe that's just totally okay with this team and I really support them. Well, there's at least one eyeball 
Ball and Uno. But who this book is for is a very fascinating question because I think it is reaching out to three people, which is one, people who are fans of the original Ecstatic Run and are happy to see these characters back again. Two, new readers who were told by their friends who were in the first group who say, you should be reading this, this is good. And three, which is a hyper niche subsection group of people who have a fascination with internet, social media, and streaming culture and how that relates to our perception of society and how that influences the way we think and see things. And I continue to be fascinated on how this book looks at this weird, um, like I call it niche, but even though like streamers are more popular than they've ever been, the way this book looks at that, comments on it, satirizes it, and makes a parody and joke of itself is so weird that it's, I think it might be too weird for people. I actually, I take that back. I don't think it's too weird for people. I think it's so weird that it's now acceptable for people. That's my concern. Yeah, I mean, it's because of the way over in like the X corner of the universe, the identity of mutant has been so politicized. You know, to be a mutant means to be enmeshed in this conversation with where do mutants fit in society? Should mutants assimilate? Should mutants isolate? You know, are you, if you're a mutant, are you a Krakoan? Are you going to go be a Krakoan? You know, none of that is present in this conversation at all. And I think it's risky having a book that's about characters who are all ostensibly mutants and not engaging with that because I think from someone who's primarily an X fan like this is an X book in name only I don't hate that personally because I think it's great to see that mutants are not a cultural monolith and to see what other mutants are doing besides hanging out on Krakoa I do see the risk that's being run by having a book about mutant characters that's so divorced from the mainstream mutant situation the complex relationship that a book like Ecstatics has with the mainstream Marvel Universe leads me to a situation where I'm not frustrated, but one of the things that we've discussed doing on this show is adapting to a bit more of a trade approach for titles that it might make more sense to do a trade approach on. And while I want to celebrate every issue of The Excellent, it's a little tough finding the specific narrative vantage issue to issue. And that kind of leads to the nature of talking about certain versions of comics. If a book is called Uncanny X-Men, there is a good chance that at some point it's going to have reasonably strong sales. If a book is called The Worst X-Men Ever, okay, well now that's going to appeal to a really niche market, (laughs) right? And it's going to have its fans, but they're rarely going to align with the overall core of fandom. When a book purposefully looks like 1960s pop art, it's going to be divorced of the cultural zeitgeist that is modern, lush. You know, we talked a bit about how the Marx Brooks cover to Immortal X-Men number two is almost unfair to the beautiful Lucas Vernick art inside. But at the same time, those are two very modern looks. This is specifically not a modern look. The variant is someone else who also makes the same kind of not modern look. What brings people to a title like this? People come to Uncanny because it's uncanny. There are people that will follow John Hickman to any project because they like the Hickman voice. There are people who will follow Wolverine to any book. They don't care the title or the writer. They want Logan. I think in a lot of ways, Ecstatics is people are following a run the way they would buy the dupe issue of Wolverine and the X-Men, the way they might have bought all new dupe, the way they might have bought Dead Girl Back from the Dead. How do you guys feel about this idea of what propels a buyer or reader to interact with media? I mean, in comics, it's so fascinating because it can 
can be so many things and a person's expectations will vary from book to book, author to author. So, you know, you might pick up Kieran Gillen's Immortal X-Men because of how you think he specifically will deal with the idea of Krakoan politics. But then that same title, Immortal X-Men, by another author, you might think, I'm just not really excited about their take on Krakoan politics and I'm just not really interested in that book anymore. Some titles you want entirely for escapism and a book like this, I think at this point, I'm kind of looking at it and relying on it to be a sort of fine art influenced take on everything that I see in comics as it is now but that also reflects a take on comics when I was watching them have a resurgence 20 years ago. I don't know I guess I'm letting this book be kind of a Swiss army knife of comics satire and analysis as well as like artistic aesthetic style differences from primary stuff that we're seeing. It's doing a lot for me and I love the things that it's doing. I just they're really specific to my interests in comics and I never look at my interests in comics and think to myself like I represent the demographic (laughs) with any medium the way you propel readers into reading it a lot of it comes down to marketing and how you sell your book to people and how you pitch it to people comics are very fascinating because part of their marketing I think of whether or not someone will pick up a book even if they've never read the title before is the first thing that anybody ever sees is the cover I think that's true for any book medium you look at the cover and you think, okay, you look at the title, you look at who you think is going to be in the book, and you have to say to yourself, would this be something I'm interested in? Ecstatics is in a weird place because I don't know if the everyday comic fan who goes to his local comic shop and is like, I'm going to buy some books, is going to look at Ecstatics and say, hmm, I'm going to pick this up because I don't know if the covers tell you enough of what's going on. You kind of have to read Ecstatics to know what's going on in Ecstatics. A lot of other books can give you at least a glimpse of an idea of, okay, you can expect to see these characters and you'll know what they'll do because they're you're either familiar enough with them or you understand enough about the title but ecstatics i don't know if enough people understand what's going on and even if they do perchance for some reason pick up the title i don't know if they're going to say this is for me because it is a very specific take on a topic that doesn't really involve the superhero genre we're not really dealing with superheroes we're dealing with internet celebrities and streamers right now Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and when people pick up comics from the big two of marvel and DC and they know what brands are going for, you see the X and you think, oh, this is an X-Men title. I'm going to be reading about mutants. I do worry that this book, its net is not wide enough nor strong enough to really keep anybody that it has under it. That's new. It's the new reader effect that has me worried. Yeah, that's where I feel like there's so many references to this key 50 issues. It's such a short period of fiction that this team represents but pete milligan and mike and laura alred are working so hard alongside letterer nate picos of blambot and i just really want to give it up to a letterer who is coming in and managing to really capture a style you know this book is so full of these references that yeah i do worry but there are things that made me really excited as the book continued the idea that we're going to introduce girl joe who who 
is a non-binary, super respected social political vlogger and influencer. And I don't know, I kind of feel like Girl Joe is probably the average reader of Ecstatics. So I think it's a pretty good move. I, however, you know, for as gay as I am, what's up, dicks? I feel like I fall pretty squarely on the, the masculine side of things. I, you know, I'm real happy with all my feminine qualities. Hey, guys. But like, I don't know that I have enough perspective to make a commentary on Girl Joe. And I wonder what the rest of the panel feels about both the inclusion of this character from a creative team who are either heteronormative or not open about anything about their personal life and the inclusion of how it works here in a story that is so about God, I wish I could avoid saying it. It's zeitgeist. It's really interesting the way Orphan is using Girl Joe as social media currency and this idea that that by virtue of like who they are in the community that they are popular in, they have this, this capital to be spent is really interesting and says something about the way queer culture is perceived on social media and the way it's like the way its influence is felt and heard. I thought it was probably one of the more interesting aspects of the title so far was this usage of this queer, non-binary, pansexual character as a way to gain ecstatics for their social media penetration and influence, which of course blows back on them in the worst possible way. And it's interesting because I think, I mean, we know a lot of LGBTQIA plus people identify with the mutants and identify with the struggle for acceptance and identity that mutants deal with in comics in their own lives. It's something I think we talk about a lot in my household and amongst my friends and in comics all over the place. It's just the metaphor has been really clear for a lot of us, whether intentional by a writer or just something that we've all attached to. And it's interesting to see it come full circle to this point where a non-binary pansexual person is in a position of power over a bunch of mutants that are kind of foundering and can't get their place. And this is somebody who, because of not just their identity, but the choices that they've made in the career that they've chosen, they give me very much like a Young Turks vibe, like whatever this channel is that they're broadcasting to. You're referencing the Rod Stewart song, right? Naturally. Definitely not the news. Political YouTube vlog channel. Yeah, exactly. Seeing them be in this position where they're making the demands, they're also saying, I'll report this because I, it's interesting, but I also will report it on things that I don't agree with that you guys are doing. So I'm in a position of like your authority on this and just let's enjoy the fact that our purposes align at this moment. It feels like a very important commentary on how the conversation around mutantdom and the queer community has evolved since the original Ecstatics came. So speaking of evolving since the original Ecstatics came out, I'm fascinated by all of these new characters on Ecstatics and on The Excellent. They are some of the Allred and Milligan crew's most ridiculous characters to date. And I love how in most books, when somebody's like, uh, quick, give that character knives. Yeah, give him, give him knife hands. Okay. Yeah, that's knife hands. Um, oh, that name's not scary. Blade Fist. Right. But here we have a character named Stripe. 
and uh, they got a giant stripe. And uh, they have power over all things stripe. It, and that's the thing. That's the kind of thing that you come up with when you're like five. When I was five and my friends would be like, let's play superheroes. What's your character? And I would be like shapes. And they would be like, what's the powers? And I'll be control over shapes. And they would be like, what does that mean? And I'm like, you see that thing? You see how it has a shape? I can control it. And they were like the shape. And I'm like, no, the thing. And they were like, that's too powerful. And I'm like, you're an idiot. I'm getting rid of you. That's how I'm controlling you. It's kind of like that. I have power over all stripes. <laughs> What? But that's what works here. The childlike freedom of expression of the hyper ridiculous contrasted by the mundanity and the realism of the world these characters continue to exist in is why, you know, fluff in the Barry Gibbsiest way being like, that's no way to talk about a babe is <laughs> it works for me. This all works for me, but in a way that I'm like, how does it work for anyone else? Right. It's so hyper specific um it's so i mean it's it's such a this this tone wouldn't work in any other book you can't have this absolute child ridiculousness juxtaposed against oh this person is literally being split in half and their guts are falling out um it just it, it wouldn't work in another title but it's working here it's it's such an interesting potent brew and i think we maybe a lot of us need that moment where a writer is just like uh i don't know control over stripes and it actually goes to print like so often our brains are just inundated with trying to get a hold of like okay what are this person's powers and what's going on and why is this supposed to be a reasonable backstory and every once in a while it is just nice to see somebody in the know who is like a well-known comics writer who's done stuff who we all can follow and respect put out a comic book title that it was obviously completely intentional that these ridiculous stupid powers are on panel and it takes it to a new level of comedy it's not even just satire it's just like we've been doing this for so long and accepting any mutant that shows up for so long sometimes we just have to lean into how ridiculous this whole thing is and it kind of lets you purge all of those moments in the serious real books and continuity that we're paying attention to every week where you are having to accept something really silly but it can't ever be commented on because whatever the tone of the book is is a little too serious for that jonah you are are the only reader on our panel who did not kind of by virtue of era inherit ecstatics even if jake tk and i weren't reading the very months that x-force became ecstatics or that ecstatics had its strangely downbeat final issue it was an era that we were all part of the cultural discussion of of media but in so many ways you inherited ecstatics as part of your back Law. So choosing to interact with the excellent is something you're doing, choosing to not have the same experience we do. And I actually commend that because if a book only works in terms of the vacuum of previous readership, now your base readership is limited by those who have ever read the first one. So I really do like that you're coming to this as somebody with less experience on the title, but I wonder how that makes the book feel for you. Your four issues, like 120 pages in, what has the experience been like reading this with so many characters with so little background? Something that I guess I really appreciate and enjoy about it is that I feel like I'm caught up with everybody else in the sense that I feel like I have the same information that pretty much everybody else has. And I like that. I like being able to say, oh, okay, nobody else is ahead of me in terms of information. I don't know if it's because a lot of this book is spent on a lot of t 
time of this weird rivalry for what I consider no good goddamn reason between Zeitgeist and Mr. Sensitive that a lot of the other It's because they're both males. Yes. You can't have too many white lead males. It doesn't fit. You really hit so many things exactly right and it just it made my heart sing. I don't know if we're spending enough time with everybody else who isn't the narrator of the book. So like this issue we got a lot of great information about Mirror Girl and her current struggles with what's going on her conflicted feelings with what should she do she doesn't know who she is anymore she isn't happy with the person she currently is she doesn't like that she's under the beck and call and snap of the fingers with zeitgeist but she can't seem to free herself she's kind of like sitting in an open cage and the door is open but she's consistently waiting for somebody to come save her when she can very easily free herself and i think that's a struggle that a lot of people can relate to with mirror girl i do think she's probably one of my favorite characters to come out from this title but comparatively we haven't really got a lot of information about fat's daughter like she's kind of just there and i could say the same thing for the german wall girl i don't remember her name (laughs) and i it feels like a lot of characters are having to take this secondary back burner role in order for us to really highlight the main conflict which is this struggle and this dick measuring contest between these two previous characters also i really want more uh poof oh poof forever i love pood i think he captures really everything that's so silly about this book in all the best ways and the other thing that this book serves in a really big way is an atmosphere of purposeful disconnect you know we're used to seeing Krako and so i'm in the car with kevo you know series contributor kevo and he i'm talking to him about how x-men red is on mars and it features the brotherhood and he goes oh i get it red like red planet and i'm like yes Exactly. You know, we literally think of like that heavy colorscape when we think of X-Men Red. When we think of any book on Krakoa, it's lush, it's vibrant. This book takes place in LA, in Malibu, on the beach. This book's color palette is so clearly divorced of the same visuals in a way that makes this book like a strangely weird relief. I have always loved Laura Alred's colors, and it's really exciting to see them in contrast with so much of what's going on in the X-Men universe at this point. This might also be the only book I can think of in recent memory that purposefully gives us as much page time with the good guys and bad guys. Because I think at a certain point, we are just giving up on that distinction between the two of them. I mean, we know obviously that the excellent are on paper worse, but this whole thing just seems like such a mess that it's less about any kind of morality and more about just trying to figure out what this could all be driving to for this broad group of people. There are no good guys in this at all. (laughs) Everyone's got a different kind of skin in this game and none of it seems to be entirely altruistic. At the very least, it seems like ecstatics is not so reckless and so thoughtless and so self-centered that they they don't care about who gets killed or harmed in the crossfire but it is a very full cast and it is it's interesting to see which characters get more of the face time i for one could use a lot more time with fluff and by that i mean in a bedroom alone with now i do want to speak about favorite characters and what this might mean possibly for the bigger picture if maybe marvel was like we really want to bring a number 
of the ecstatics into the main fold. And Milligan and Alred were like, we have a little bit more story to tell. Is it possible to let us finish our story out before you use them? That would make me really excited. I'm not under the impression that like, you know, every team is going to get a fat. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> but I really could see you go girl, dead girl, you know, a version of the anarchist. These characters really could fit into the X-Men's bigger picture. And I would enjoy that very much. I think the anarchist would be great in a new mutants book. Oh yeah, that's a great call. I would really be interested to see his political ideology introduced into that dynamic of people raised, you know, the of the students raised by Xavier and, you know, trying to strike their own path and find their own way. I think that could be a really, really cool conversation. For me, it definitely goes back to Mr. Sensitive. I, having experienced him in an era where team leadership was a little bit different. I mean, like at that point, X-Men team leadership was almost a little bit closer to like a Star Trek captain. Like there were just very few people that had ever taken on the role. As we moved through the 2000s, it became a lot more, like there were a lot more teams, a lot more rotating leaders. But for me, Mr. Sensitive has always had this like vaunted status as a a leader of an X-Book in the early 2000s that like makes him a little bit special to me. And I would love to see him in mainline continuity, not even necessarily like leading a team on a Krakoan X-Book, but just like in some sort of recognizable position of semi-authority and or leadership in some sector of Krakoan life, whether that be in entertainment, whether that be in like the healing gardens. I don't know what it would be, but he just, him as a passionate but somewhat terrible leader is always a good time for me and a story that I think could intersect with mainline continuity in some fun ways. So I think we have one major question about continuity. How did everybody feel about the Doctor Strange appearance here? This is far from the team's first interaction with the good Doctor, but I really would love to know how you guys felt about this integration. This was like a big moment for me of being like, okay, so what are we doing with this book in continuity? Because at this point, Doctor Strange is pretty firmly dead. This book has been out for a while, so I don't know anything about the writing or publishing of it, and perhaps they really, really front-loaded the writing to the point where they were not aware that Doctor Strange would be dead. But, you know, Doctor Strange does feature big and two ecstatic stories, and so the idea that it would just be for them as kind of standard Doctor Strange thing, you know, that's, it's still cool. It's, I mean, it's still an important aspect of the story, and, you know, them just going to trash his house is really, really funny. <laughs> But I definitely had this moment where I was like, is Clea about to show up and be like, Doctor Strange is dead, you idiots. Get out of my house. Again, like, I'm not prescribing anything for this book. It doesn't bother me that it's not recognizable to what I'm reading elsewhere. This just was one of those moments where I was like, okay, so Doctor Strange is clearly around in this book when he is not around in the main universe. So either they're going to tell us something very specific about when this all took place, or this is just its own thing, and I need to put it out of my mind. I'm going to be exclaiming so sweet Virginia Wolf. anytime someone or something surprises me from now on. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. And you know, again, it's not that we don't love this book or that this issue wasn't great. It's just that it might be a title that reads better in trade, perhaps than on a monthly schedule. Hey, 
everybody, Nico here one last time. These voices specials have been such an incredible part of our process here. It's been so exciting to get to talk about these titles and to see our coverage continue to evolve. I love bringing in new voices on these. Like That's, you know, the magic of the title, and we hope you guys enjoy. Don't forget, we make this show three times a week, every week. MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and a combination of premiere and chrono-skimming classics over on Fridays. You can always check out our partner channel over on YouTube at Hubs Plus, where you can check out partner shows like The Billy Club, a deep dive into the origins of Daredevil, story by story, starting in the 1960s, and more. You can also check out my original work in the Young Men in Love upcoming Pride Anthology with incredible creators like Terry Bloss, Cena, Grace, Joe Glass, Anthony Oliveira, and more. You definitely don't want to miss it. You guys can always find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and the show at X is for Podcast. Until then, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember to keep those voices heard, and we'll see ya. I'm Jake, and you can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. And that would make me Dame Red Red. Uh, you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram for the most part. Mostly Twitter. Slightly ragey. Yeah. And I'm Steven. You can find me over on Twitter at, as Steven of Wonder, or over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star. And this is X's 4 Podcast, and we hope you survive the experience, unlike Igor of the Memenstrus. <laughs> <laughs> and that must mean we're covering Marvel Voices Identity number one, the AAPI Community Identity book. We've got four stories for you today. Uh, we've got Secrets, written by Pornsak Pichesho, art by Chris Lee, and colors by Brian Valenza. We've got Fool Me Twice, written by Sabir Prasada, art by Eric Coda, colors by Brian Raber. We've got The Primeval Paradox, written by Jeremy Holt, art by Kei Zama, colors by Irma Nii. Vila. While You Were Out, written by Emily Kim, art by Ricky Yagawa, and colors by Sebastian Chang. And we should note that all of these stories have lettering done by VCs, Travis Lanham, and the overall design is by Stacy Zucker. So, folks, how do we feel about Secret with Shang-Chi and Jimmy Woo? It's hard to really answer that question, I'll tell you why. So, we get a little hint about the story where they were injected with some inert isotope, and it was kind of sending subliminal messages to their brains. They were angry but other than that i actually think it was pretty good it didn't seem it didn't seem very off to me at all actually yeah it's narrated by jimmy woo and it's this like seeming conflict between the two of them but then the lens is pulled back a little bit and you see that they're being gladiated i guess by a bunch of white guys in animal masks it was very squid games yeah oh my god i'm so glad i was not the only one who thought that (laughs) (laughs) and i see the room with like all of the people with the animal masks and I'm like I'm like oh squid game oh you know that one <laughs> that one that one that one eyes wide put mm-hmm. yes <laughs> I love this thing where superheroes are so super that they don't really care about the like the threat around them. They're just concerned with the drama between them. You see this in like in X-Men all the time where like Lorna's really upset that she that her coffee got dumped and not that Jean Grey is unconscious on the floor next to her. Well, Jean Grey has low blood sugar, and damn it, that bitch needs to take care of that herself. Constantly passing out. <laughs> Pressure changes and she passes out. You've got Jimmy basically going over in his head how he thinks that Shang-Chi has misrepresented himself. I'm curious about what we think of that. Well, 
I mean, it's not exactly wrong. But then again, it's also not his freaking business to know exactly the ins and outs of what Shang-Chi is doing. Like, they live in two different worlds as far as the kind of villain shit they cover. So, like, for Jimmy to be like, I think you're keeping something from me. It's like, dude, I am part of a secret society. What the hell <laughs> does not ring with the word secret society? Yeah, I'm not as familiar with Jimmy Woo, so I couldn't really speak on his characterization as much. I wasn't really sure how anybody can answer that question from Shang-Chi's standpoint. Jimmy accuses him of being like, you know, raised in a cult in China, and he does have like his father's organization that he oversees. And Jimmy, for his part, involved in a, like a secret, like a spy organization, essentially. And so they're kind of coming at their superheroing from, from different points of entry, but similar. When connecting that to the conversation later where Shang-Chi points out that, you know, being Chinese and being Chinese-American are two different experiences, I thought that was a really interesting take. It felt ham-fisted. Because, like, they're talking about how Chinese and Chinese-American experiences are different, which is absolutely valid and true, but didn't really seem to have any sort of bearing on the story or the action reaction from these characters. Like Raven said, I am not really sure why that was, I guess, included in the dialogue, because I, I wasn't sure what that had to do with anything in this specific instance. You know, especially with two characters that I personally cannot, like, really identify with, considering, you know, they are superheroes. <laughs> yeah, the what's at stake is really kind of questioned here. It's like, they're professionals, they work together professionally, you know, it seems like what's at stake is their capacity to have a particular kind of friendship that Jimmy seems to want, and Shang-Chi is kind of like, okay, well, I guess so, sure, why not? But it does read as something that seems apart from the conflict of this, this particular story. Yeah, it's like, I just needed something a little bit extra, like, to, I guess, set up the spike, because the punchline is, you know, we have different experiences, because I'm Chinese and you're Chinese-American, and we are not just a singular monolith as a culture. So, like, I needed the setup to the punchline, but all I got was the punchline. Mm -hmm. It was that line mixed with the fact that, you know, we start in the middle of their squabble, we don't know necessarily how they got there and it was like the whole story well actually very interesting and i would love to read an actual whole storyline of it it was kind of a whirlwind and i'm also sad that we didn't get more of like all of the the heroes showing up uh, and teaming up to save them that was actually really yeah, cool what a great tableau we had brawn sister dagger ms marvel giant man Leko Wu, luna snow yes um, yes really, really i wanted cool. to see yeah. them fight together yeah we don't we don't really get that big fight in this story that we do get a little bit more in the second but i agree like some some action would have been nice instead of just seeing the guys take off their masks and give up mm -hmm. right yeah because when have a group of white men caught in their own evil doing ever just given up they yeah. don't they usually get very defensive yeah <laughs> Also, I wanted to see Luna Snow do, like, something, because I'm so intrigued. I've heard of her, and she has such a cool design, and I love ice powers. So I really hope we get, like, a story of her next year. Yes, absolutely. I was almost hoping that Auntie would have shown up as well. Yes! Mm. yes! She would have been amazing! Oh! She, she would have been amazing. You know who else would have been amazing here? Hmm. Sister Staff. Yes! Ooh. Oh, my God, yes. Like, please, give me 
all the characters because they they the costume work is amazing and like mm-hmm. the, the power set seem like really interesting and their attitudes towards each other i've only seen like little tastes of it and i want more i absolutely agree i just really want to see how these characters interact together on a page you know what their dialogue is like what their you know power team-ups are like what their priorities are how their values come into the way that they fight yes This is a lot of potential, but in this particular story, it's not fully, fully realized. But why don't we jump to our second story, Fool Me Twice, featuring Ms. Marvel and Cameron. This is, I believe, a throwback to one of Ms. Marvel's first arcs. There was another boy in her community named Cameron who she grew up with, who also went through Terragenesis, but he went evil. Yeah. If, like Ms. Marvel, the first boy to ever shatter your heart came begging for forgiveness, would you be as magnanimous as she? Well, I can't say that I have haven't been. So, <laughs> so I felt her so much in this story. I would have done the same thing. I actually really loved this story. But speaking of shattering, <laughs> I like this story. And the art was just, it was mildly reminiscent of Moon Knight. Mm, I see that. Especially in the panel where Kamala is actually showing up for the first time. It's this scarf trail that keeps showing up. The way it trails behind her in multiple panels, it's just really beautiful and dynamic but i also like the like some of the attention to detail and like the way she's reflected in his face on that first page the graffiti to the side the sort of stark black lighting against a well-lit city it's a beautiful story it really is i loved loved that panel with her reflecting on his face i'm gonna be honest i actually have not read uh much ms marvel at all so i don't really know much about this character but i did really really enjoy the story and it was easy. I felt like this was actually much easier to follow too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was a little easier to understand what was at stake. I mean, once the drop came and it was revealed Cameron was really trying to basically murder her and take her life so that he could be immortal, which is just horrific. You know, it became clear that this was, this was a story about Ms. Marvel coming back around again and, and learning to trust herself and trust her instincts because mm-hmm. she did not go right for this. Ooh. Oh, Oh, yep, been there, definitely done that, where somebody just, it's like, I knew that it was not going to go well, but, you know, they, they begged, they pleaded, you know, they did all the right things, which is mm-hmm. like a red flag in and of itself. And then, yeah, I turned out to be like, dead on, right? Like, oh, oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. I actually kind of was rooting for him. I love a redemption story. So I was really hoping for that, but I think the story was great the way it was told too. So yeah, this wasn't about his redemption redemption story this is about her coming back around to this complex source of trauma and emotion for her and looking it in the eye and being like i've i've grown and this is still hard it doesn't necessarily get easier but her capacity to navigate it has gotten better absolutely i I appreciate that really organic growth i really loved the emotion on her face in the panels Mm -hmm. yeah oh man that was i think one of the best things to me was all the different small emotions like faces can be really really hard and like getting small nuances in like the lip position the Mm -hmm. eyebrows absolutely oh my gosh especially the page where Cameron is close with her and they show like the up close panels of his face Mm -hmm. to me that was like the ultimate signifier that like okay this is a manipulation tactic Mm -hmm. I was like dog face yes yes oh my gosh it was just so well done even the panel where like his thumb is like on her chin like oh my gosh like it was so so beautifully portrayed 
it was set up and we knew we knew where it was going from that moment on so the page turns and we get shang chi and another crew coming to warn kamala away from this guy because he is here to use an artifact to maybe kill her i guess yeah just a little bit of murder just just a soup salt of murder <laughs> <laughs> and she so and she is pissed that she got hoodwinked by this guy again i just want to say that i'm very excited that i got sister staff in this one yeah and sister dagger and sister dagger i will say that sister staff could have totally taken this entire situation on her own but i respect the fact that she was saving some action for the others (laughs) it is interesting how in like these ensemble stories people who we see as like otherwise completely capable solo fighters go down so fast so that other people can have some time to shine because she goes down very fast she swings her staff once and it's like oh okay she's done for this fight she didn't use her mutant power once i was so (laughs) sad He's like, look, I get, I get it, I get it. You're limited on on space, but come on. <laughs> I know. I just wanted to see those beautiful ribbons of solid sound. There are four stories in this book. There are four stories in this book where, in previous Marvel Voices books, we've seen like upwards of like eight at times. Yeah. So it seems like there should be enough space for everyone to get a bit of a flex in. Yeah. I agree. I agree. But overall, I'm still not mad at it. They did a pretty darn good job especially for you know having only a quarter of a book to actually get your story out in I was a little surprised by the brutality that Shang-Chi showed towards Kamran. That just seemed a little off to me, but the rest of it was fantastic, especially the moment between them that followed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does kind of shatter Kamran's face, which it does. Yes, that's a lot. That is a lot. And then he says, we'll heal him and then turn him over to the authorities. (laughs) Shattered this crystal boy's skull. God, I love you. I'm like cycling through the art and it's just so beautiful just this great unpacking from kamala when shang chi asks her if she's okay and she's like i wasn't hurt and he's like that's not really what i meant she's like no i'm not okay (laughs) yes i was so happy she embraced that i'm so happy she was able to say she was angry you know i feel like so many right i feel like so many times like we see these heroes like have to like suck it up and just i don't know be the better person and kind of repress themselves and she just openly you know speaks about her anger and her feelings and uh, i love that so much i really really love this story there's something so real about like she was mad at herself for for being so willing initially to trust this guy who was clearly not trustworthy and i mean come on i'm sorry which one of us hasn't had that moment where you know the guy has come along and batted his eyes and we know that it's trouble but you know we it's like we fall for it we know it's gonna happen that there's there's gonna be hurt and pain involved and it's like if for a half a second you let that in that garden it stings and then of course you blame yourself afterward even if it wasn't your fault that this person was trying to manipulate you and it wasn't your fault that they knew they knew how to needle you and how to get under your skin because you know they've done it before so it was such a, a natural human reaction i loved it absolutely raven in the shang chi series there is a theme of shang chi teaming up with a bunch of different avengers later on they confront him in this really bullying way here he's teaming up with all of these characters are are you telling me that 
white people will come in and demand the networks and labor that people of color have already put in and the community building and they just they'll just storm in and try and colonize i mean i'm sorry appropriate i mean um sorry uh take over uh and use those resources for their own ends so they put him on their team they make him do all the work and then they come down on him for doing all the work yes right Mm. exactly bullshit exactly i highly recommend the shang chi series to be honest it is Mm -hmm. really i love it (laughs) i think it's so good (laughs) i love it because he keeps telling them dude how many ways can i put this uh fuck off (laughs) exactly oh my gosh so to see shang chi in a group of heroes as a leader not just as a leader but kind of as a big brother is a juxtaposition to seeing him get like blamed and beaten for his work with the avengers yes Mm. oh my gosh i i just really loved the difference here. It was a nice mirror, I think, to what's going on in his book. Well, speaking of mirrors, let's move on to the third story, The Primeval Paradox, featuring mostly Mantis, but also a little bit of Groot, and also Mantis's inner child? Question mark? Oh, yes, I have so many questions. (laughs) Or I had so many questions (laughs) that I will repeat. (laughs) So the quick recap is Mantis and Groot are going to investigate a psychic blip on their radar and they land on a planet and Mantis finds a creature that begins to emulate all of the men in her life which is interesting who she then fights then finds out that the thing she's been fighting is her inner child I guess and changes color so the patriarchy was in me <laughs> the patriarchy what? was in me all along <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so yeah we see this thing turn into a Rudy version of Libra who was one of the Zodiac crew this is like a pull from like 70s 80s marvel she is half Vietnamese human and also half Libra. But she was raised by the priests of Pama, those not quite Cree plant priests. So she defeats Root Libra. Okay, just, just a quick daddy. side aside here. Plant, oh my gosh, yes. Oh, he Ooh, is plant, plant daddy. daddy. <laughs> um, Tell me I'm wrong. You're, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. For my money, I thought by the end of this story that the Root thing, whatever it was, was going to be like connected to... Or communicating with Groot. I mean, why else would Groot be there? He is right. also a plant thing. The fact that that didn't happen was very confusing to me. I just yeah, to get that in. I agree. I, I thought that because he was there and then when we see the plant, I was like, oh my gosh, it's another little tiny Groot, but he's like a little bush monster. I love him. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't. Right? And then it wasn't. Then it disappeared. So Mantis fights Monsieur Krul, who is her uncle and the man who murdered her mother. She fights Swordsman, who was her lover and sort of the father of her child although that was swordsman as possessed by a Kotati alien. I had no idea about any of that. I was right. like, I was like, what? <laughs> 70s and 80s Avengers was a wild time with some wild stories. So yeah, swordsman was, swordsman and Mantis joined the Avengers. Swordsman dies and then is reanimated by a Kotati alien. That's again, one of the plant aliens mm-hmm. from the Kree homeworld, Hala. Okay. Hala. And- yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. That's so stupid. Oh, if it wasn't you, it was going to be me. (laughs) 
So then Mantis has to fulfill this prophecy where she's the celestial Madonna. She has a baby with swordsman who is Koi, who goes on to try and genocide the earth. That's the celestial messiah is Koi. Not even it's that's not even the end of the convolution. So, okay, so she fights plant swordsman. She fights plant Thanos and remembers her time as an Avenger. Then she sees Koi and she's like, I've never had a prouder moment than giving birth to this like future genocidal maniac. Oh, for fuck's sake. This thing turns into her son she gives it a hug it then she realizes it's her inner child and she i guess absorbs it into herself and yeah how do you guys feel about the change in mantis's skin tone to signify this like integration of her inner child what yeah like was she (laughs) did she lick a mushroom like inner inner what yeah i was very confused by the inner child aspect i'm a uh, very white passing latino so i don't know if i can really speak on that personally that specific aspect of the question i just know that i was confused i wasn't exactly sure how that worked maybe we should just leave it as group confusion because then mantis goes on to say it's no secret that my identity was split into five pieces that Thanos tried to destroy. And when I read that, I was very confused again because I had never heard of that before, but that was a okay, secret so as far as I was concerned. I, I'm glad I wasn't the only person going, wait, Ben, what? Yeah, no, you were not the only one, Raven, I promise. I dug into it. It was from a 2001 Avengers miniseries called Celestial War. So, um, oh, 21 years ago. <laughs> so this is, and this is, so this is the problem with characters like Mantis who are great and like have great characterizations in the MCU is that they they are laden with lots of weird, complicated baggage. And so trying to tell even a simple story that's like, these are the important beats of this character's life can be just labyrinthine. Yeah, absolutely. If this were Scarlet Witch, we'd be having a similar problem because we'd be like, okay, which which version of the Scarlet Witch are we talking about? The one which, that's a mutant? The one that's a witch? <laughs> which, which, <laughs> which, which, which are we? <laughs> in some ways, it's almost kind of like strap in, be here for the ride because Mantis is a wild one. And these are the most important things to remember about her and we can hand wave everything else so there's a way like i i just figured out a way that they could have actually helped themselves quite a bit mm-hmm. and that's just put in that little footnote at the bottom it tells you what mm-hmm. comic books they're referencing yeah if they had just done that i would have known to go back and read that and that would have made their entire story make a shitload more sense absolutely i'm actually yeah i'm really glad that you said that because i was looking for that at the end of certain stories as well mm-hmm. i actually was looking for that at the end of the first story with jimmy woo and mm-hmm. you know what that doesn't mean that it has to but like, you know like with all the characters showing up it has to fit somewhere i guess it's like one of those like when they do like a marvel now number one or whatever it felt like one of those intro stories to an upcoming series yes. like you know catch up with shang chi and jimmy woo in agents of atlas yes yes exactly but marvel's really become very footnote phobic which is interesting because the rise of stuff like marvel unlimited makes it so much easier for people to go and check those references mm-hmm. so you would think that it's something that they'd, they'd show a little more interest in bringing back in but i don't know it, it's a choice it's sad to me because i'm like sometimes i get lost in some of these stories and i get very discouraged in fact right now i'm very discouraged on trying to pick up and catch up on like the last year's worth of comics because i don't know what's actually sapient to you know what i need to read and what i don't need to read but half the time it feels like when i'm reading a new book that they're making reference to stuff and i don't know what they're referencing 
Now, it's funny that we say that about footnotes, and I know that I was the one that introduced footnote phobic, but in the next story on the first page, we get a footnote, which is hilarious to me. Mm -hmm. This is while you were out featuring Wong, and the footnote on the first page is to let us know that this story took place before the death of Doctor Strange, which is why Stephen Strange is sitting at the breakfast table. This was actually my favorite story. Yeah. I just really, really love Wong. I think he's he's really, really fun to read in the books and also in the movies, which actually the movies is my first exposure to him. So it was just really cool to to see like an actual story dedicated to him in the comic. Yeah, Wong is not a character who gets a lot of screen time in general, but then he's not someone whose interiority you get to see very often either. It took like 20 years of publication, probably more for him to like stop calling Stephen Strange master and Ugh. to stop just like mm. being purely a domestic servant who <laughs> Strange would constantly refer to as Faithful Wong. Yeah. Oh god, yeah, no. I don't understand why he's not the main Marvel mystic, to be honest. He's well, just it's a, so Yeah, fun. it's a great question. Given the fact that Wong in the MCU is this really fleshed out character, is the Sorcerer Supreme, you know, and given that Doctor Strange is now dead, what would you hope to see for Wong in this post-Doctor Strange era, since I guess the job of Sorcerer Supreme is taken? Well, I, uh. want, I want him to be something more than the faithful manservant, because mm-hmm. that trope has been going on for so long and like i love him as a character and i would not want him to go away i want to see him in the story but this the, the always kind of hinting at he's dr stephen strange's manservant he takes mm-hmm. care of the house for dr stephen strange it's like ah, can we make him his own entity mm-hmm. he takes care of the house because he happens to live there mm-hmm. but he is also the person who curates the library and who takes care of other mystical things Make him viable and valuable for himself rather than just an extension of somebody else. Giving him his own autonomy in the books would be really beneficial to the character and to the fans. You know, uh, people who really love him and want to see more of him. They literally dedicated an entire story in this book to him. Like, people want to see him. And it feels like they're kind of trying to split the difference between making him a character who has his own agency and ability and capacity and, you know, being a good domestic, essentially, because that's what he's doing in this story. He is taking care of the Sanctum Sanctorum. He is putting away all the priceless magical objects that have fallen between the couch cushions. And then he's defending the Sanctum from a demon that keeps trying to break in. So you do get to see him have this excellent action moment where he defends, you know, the Sanctum Sanctorum from an incursion of demonic force. But it's not something you get to see very often. And, you know, the theme of this story is, look what Wong does on a typical day while Doctor Strange is out. You know, as though, like, if this were Jarvis, he'd just be, like, washing the dishes and cleaning the dining room and, you know, attending to the Avengers communications. Mm -hmm. But this is what Wong does. So part of what I loved about the story was the moment the Girl Scout is introduced. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my god, yes! I, like, I went right back to that page, so, like, it just (laughs) I just had to say it. She's so cute! (laughs) Your little soul cookies. So freaking perfect. Yes. I love that she keeps coming. I wish she's holding the giant encyclopedia. I like melted. Oh my god. <laughs> 
I used to be a Girl Scout, so mm-hmm. I remember doing the whole door-to-door selling cookies and shit. And I just, oh, oh I loved this. And it was, it's literally like every single fundraiser that <laughs> yeah. kids have ever had to do. And I'm like, this is so damn cute. Oh my god! But you can also so tell that there's something motivating it besides just, and you're like, okay, cookies, great. And then just like a little bit later, oh, you've got a different thing. Okay. Oh, oh, something's going on. When you showed up with the encyclopedia, I'm like, "Mm -mm. Mm -mm." (laughs) no. She kept asking to be like invited in. I was like, oh my God, is she a vampire? And then I was like, like, wait, she can't be a vampire because it's daylight out. So what the hell is she? (laughs) But then also like, do kids even do door to door stuff anymore? Actually, that was a big red flag for me. They're not allowed to anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. They have to have an adult in tow. Exactly. Otherwise, how else are you going to know if they're Igor of the Mementstress clan? With a beautiful pink backpack. <laughs> With a beautiful... It is a beautiful pink backpack. Like, I love that juxtaposition of that weird, ugly gray monster with the big eyes, and it's still got the little backpack over one claw. <laughs> I'm a little worried that it, like, took over the little girl. No, mm. no, I think it was just a construct. I think it was, like, a cocoon. That's what I'm choosing to that believe. Is, that is exactly <laughs> what I am choosing to believe. It doesn't seem like the kind of story where a little girl has lost her soul forever or whatever. Yeah, no. It, like, oh, no just, it's, it's a cocoon construct. But, okay, can we talk just real quick about the giant uh, centipede flying thing with its yeah. giant sad eyes? I love the set. I actually thought it was really cool. I love the design. I want... It was so pathetic. It really was. I just want more of it. I love enemies that, like, look like this. I cannot stand spiders to save my life. Like, they Mm -hmm. squick me so much. But, like, this? This I can handle. This was so, so fun. I was like, I want to see Wong face an entire army of these things. Mm -hmm. As the Sorcerer Supreme. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. And then he just like hand waves. It's like, I squashed a bug while cleaning. Oops. And I love this whole pen is mightier than the sword. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, same. I loved it. It feels like a comment on Wong's role too. He's like, oh yeah, like I could be the Sorcerer Supreme, but how about I be this awesome guy who can do these other things instead because Mm -hmm. the pen is mightier than sword. And then when they're sitting at the table, it's like such a difference in personality. Like, oh, I did this thing and I mm-hmm. saw an entire crowd of people and then I did this thing and then I was recorded in a documentary and Wong is like yeah, I cleaned <laughs> Right? And it just points to the massive difference between Stephen Strange and Wong Stephen has exactly. to tell you every last good little thing he did yep. he's arrogant that way and Wong is like, I took care of this <laughs> He doesn't need to gloat about it It's just, it, it needed to be done It got done. Mm-hmm. That's how that works Steven, you arrogant bitch. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, any final thoughts or comments about this issue? I like parts of it a lot mm-hmm. and other parts of it not so much. And not everything's always going to be for me. There could have been some nuances that I straight up miss because mm-hmm. I am not Asian. It's not my culture. So there may have been culturally significant things that I missed, but that's on me. But the stories that I like, I really did like i think they were done really well and i i, I want to see more of these stories 